I'm Toby Logsdon, and this is your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, Solomon writes, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Solomon knew that things weren't always as they appeared on the surface. Someone who's arrogant at the time most likely feels very insecure about themselves, for example. Similarly, those who outwardly appear to be righteous, doing all the right things, such as praying or carrying a Bible around with them, are often living a lifestyle in which they pretend to be righteous, but they're really not. The Bible teaches that there are two types of righteousness. There's the righteousness of man, which makes a person look like they're righteous in front of others, and then there's the righteousness of God. These two types of righteousness have absolutely nothing in common. In fact, they're completely opposite from one another. For that reason, God completely rejects humanity's notion of righteousness, and he'll only accept his own. God's righteousness is the only type of righteousness that results in eternal life. Humanity's standard of righteousness might bring honor and the praises of other people, but it ultimately will never bring a person to the point where they've tapped into the righteousness required by God for receiving that eternal life, and will thus result in a person remaining in a state of spiritual death. It seems right to us that a person who's praying or who wears a cross necklace and maybe even spends time listening to podcasts which are focused on glorifying Jesus would be considered a righteous person, but the Bible teaches us that if we don't have that legitimate connection with God by putting our faith in Jesus, then we don't have the righteousness that we need to get into heaven. Jesus taught about the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, verses 25 to 30, telling us that our churches will be filled with people who are filled with God's righteousness and also with people who aren't filled with God's righteousness. They'll be showing man's righteousness instead. And we can't always tell the difference on the surface, and we should remain mindful of that fact while also making sure that we're trying to see things from God's perspective and not our own. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13, Solomon writes, Even in laughter the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. Here again, Solomon reminds us that things aren't always as they appear to be on the surface. Obviously, this verse is closely tied to the previous verse. The two experiences cover all of human existence. Laughter can sometimes be a way of hiding heartache, and joy can be replaced by sudden grief. I think most of us who are adults can probably remember what it was like back in grade school. There would be certain kids who just seemed to be constantly making fun of other kids or bullying other kids. And as I look back on my own experience, my own years in junior high school, for example, I remember one kid who just loved to to be a bully. He loved to pick on other kids and laugh at them. And it wasn't until years later that I learned that his father used to beat him very badly. And clearly, this kid's heart was hurting, and he was disguising that hurt by bullying and making fun of other kids. That's the type of thing that Solomon is talking about here. The second half of this verse corresponds to the second half of the previous verse, which told us that the end of the way which seems right to man is death. And so here Solomon reminds us that the end of joy may be grief. If it's not the joy of the Lord that's giving a person joy, then it's guaranteed to end in grief. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 14, Solomon writes, The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. 
Now, the Hebrew term that gets translated backslider here, if we were to translate it literally, it would mean to depart away from uh, or, or to turn away from God. So we're talking about someone who has turned their heart away from God. And the implication here isn't passive. To the contrary, it's something that's active. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It's not accidental in any way. Jesus chose Judas Iscariot as one of his own disciples, knowing full well that Judas would be the one to ultimately betray Jesus. Judas wasn't forced to betray Jesus. He chose to do so on his own free will. Judas had every single reason in the world to believe that Jesus was exactly who he continually claimed to be. I mean, Judas witnessed the miracles. He heard the teachings, but he turned his heart away from God nevertheless. The person who turns their heart away from God is contrasted in this verse with the good person who is satisfied by their ways. Now, let me ask this. Was Judas satisfied by his turning his heart away from God? Absolutely not. In fact, he was so emotionally devastated after betraying Jesus that he went and committed suicide. Satisfaction was the furthest thing from Judas. So this verse is continuing with the theme of things not always being as they appear. A person who seems to be happy and living large, but who doesn't walk in the ways of the Lord might look satisfied, but all they ever want is more, more, more. They're never truly satisfied with anything. This concludes Lesson 1. Lesson 2. In Proverbs chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, Solomon writes, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. You know, we've taken a look at the false appearance of satisfaction that a person who turns their heart away from God experiences. That was a deliberate choice. But what about the person who isn't so deliberate necessarily? That's the naive person. Now, back in chapter 9, Solomon discussed the fact that wisdom has tried to reach out to the naive, crying out, whoever is naive, let them turn in here. But the naive chose to listen to foolishness, to the voice of foolishness instead, who has the same exact plea. Whoever is naive, let them turn in here. That's back in chapter 9. But the problem is that the naive person is too easily swayed to ever really find out what is true and is ultimately revealed to be a fool. The wise and sensible person, on the other hand, can think for themselves and correctly discern what is true and what isn't true. For some, that might take more time. That process might take some time. It might mean slowing down and being more deliberate, but it's better to be slow and safe than dashing and done for. The fool turns their heart from God, as we saw just a couple of verses ago, but the wise person turns from evil. The wise and sensible person considers their steps, carefully placing their feet on solid ground rather than into sinking sand. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17, Solomon writes, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Rather than using a contrast in this verb, Solomon offers us a comparison. So here he compares someone who has a short fuse, a real short temper, with someone who is methodical in the evil that they plan. The principle that Solomon wants us to catch here is that whether foolish and evil acts are planned or spontaneous, the end result is undesirable. Nobody wants to be perceived as a fool, and nobody wants to be hated, right? But we should also make note of the fact that the outcomes of the actions, according to Solomon, 
are different in terms of degrees. Would you rather be considered a fool or be hated by people? Well, this is kind of like being asked if you'd rather be stretched out on an Iron Maiden so that you can never walk again, or if you'd rather be quartered alive in the town square. I mean, obviously, nobody wants either, right? But if it's a case of choosing the lesser evil, it's probably better to be perceived as a fool than to be hated. The fact is, we all engage in foolish behavior from time to time, but foolish behavior is more easily forgiven than is evil, which is meticulously and methodically planned out. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 18, Solomon writes, The naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. Now, the first thing that we should make note of in this particular proverb is the repetition of terms from the previous verses. Naive, foolishness, and sensible are all words that have appeared in recent verses. What that tells us is that Solomon is drawing a conclusion based on the previous verses. Now, the contrast here is between the rewards that are received by the naive and the rewards received by the sensible. Now, remember, the voice of wisdom has called out to the naive, but they found the same words to be even more enticing when spoken by foolishness. And so thus, the consequence of being naive is receiving an inheritance of foolishness. Think of all the get-rich-quick schemes out there. You know, it's amazing to me that people fall for them when a little common sense would cause a person to stay away from them. Nevertheless, I remember one time working in a uh, in a bank in North Carolina while I was in seminary, and a woman walked up to me. I was a teller. She walked up to me, and she tried to deposit a check for $16,000 and change. Well, the check wouldn't scan. Uh, it looked really fishy, and it was from a bank that I'd never heard of before. And at the same time, she was asking for a cashier's check for almost the same amount, minus a couple thousand dollars. So I proceeded to ask her some questions, which revealed that some fraudster somewhere had emailed her, telling her that she'd won the lottery, uh, a lottery that she'd never registered for, and they told her that all she needed to do was pay these taxes on her winnings up front, and that they were covering those taxes by sending her this check. All she needed to do was deposit it and then send them a cashier's check. Now, of course, the check that she was trying to deposit turned out to be fake, and if I would have allowed her to deposit it and draw from it with a cashier's check, it would have cost her over $13,000. Solomon is correct. The naive inherit foolishness. On the other hand, the sensible are rewarded by being crowned with knowledge. Remember, this is the person who proceeds with caution, deliberating and contemplating every step in order to ensure that their steps are on solid ground. Without a doubt, their reward is much more enticing, even though it has required a greater effort and maybe more time. The principle here is to think about what you're doing. The reward for careless action is nothing to brag about, but the reward for being sensible is highly respectable. This concludes Lesson 2. Lesson 3. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 19, Solomon writes, The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Here we find the one and only proverb in this entire chapter, which contrasts the righteous and the wicked. Again, like with the last verse, we're looking at the rewards people will receive depending on the course of actions or lifestyle that they choose. Despite being sold into slavery by his brothers and imprisoned unjustly for several years, Joseph was a righteous man. If there's ever been anyone who had a good reason to feel bitterness and hostility, and if there's ever been anyone who would be more likely than anyone else to say, God, why? It's Joseph. But despite his circumstances, he always kept his cool. In the long run, 
It paid off. The pharaoh of Egypt recognized Joseph as a righteous and wise man, and Joseph was promoted to the second highest position in the land. Of course, the day did come when his brothers came to Egypt. The same brothers that had sold him into slavery came to Egypt needing help. Ultimately, they too had to bow down before Joseph. Bowing down is a position of submission. It's recognizing one's need and respect for the person being bowed to. In the end, even the wicked and unwise who have turned their hearts away from God will have to bow before Jesus. They'll be forced to acknowledge that he alone is Lord, but it'll be too late. They'll forever be locked outside the gates of the righteous. The lesson here is to remember that the only way to secure a place inside the gates of heaven is to put your faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 20, Solomon writes, The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. You know, money makes people do really stupid things, to be straightforward about the matter. Somebody once said, Money is not the most important thing in the world. Love is. Fortunately, I love money. Now, that statement is kind of funny, but it's also sad because it echoes the sentiment of the average person. That's why people are drawn to people who have money. Just take a look at the junk magazines in the checkout counter at your local grocery store. Look at who's being featured. Look at who's being idolized by millions upon millions of fans. Do you honestly think that most of those people would have a fan in the world if they were a person who, instead of living a glamorous and rich life, was broke and homeless? Take a rich person who wears the nicest and most fashionable clothes and who has a gigantic entourage. You take away their money, and do you think that the entourage remains? Putting it into that type of perspective shows us that people in general tend to love people who have money because money means influence, influence means power, and power means a perceived respect. Knowing the power of money, James warned his readers of the dangers of catering to the rich, writing, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? That's from James chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. He goes on to tell them that, quote, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's from verse 7. As someone who has witnessed this type of favoritism in the church, let me tell you, friends, this sickness of judging with evil motives due to the desire to appease the rich is alive and well in our churches today, and it's spreading like a pandemic. The principle here is not to hate money. Rather, it's to keep money in its rightful place and not to allow money to cause you to sin. This verse is actually very closely linked to the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21, where Solomon writes, He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. You see, if we hate or despise our neighbor, if we show them anything short of impartial, unconditional love as a result of their material poverty, or if we hate them or don't completely respect them for any reason, we're in sin. This is a sin that happens easily enough to any of us. It sneaks up on us gradually. Maybe we start wondering why our neighbor doesn't mow their yard as regularly as everybody else, overlooking the fact that they work two or three jobs just to make ends meet. Or maybe we wonder why they have that old beat-up clunker of a car around sitting in their parkway, ignoring the possibility that their credit cards are maxed out and that their kids aren't able to eat three full meals a day as a result of their overwhelming debt. 
You know, when I moved to North Carolina, we moved in next door to a woman who had recently kicked her abusive husband out of the house. She was going to school and working full-time, and she was trying to raise two kids, all on her own. Needless to say, her plate was full. She didn't have a lot of free time. Mowing the yard wasn't very high on her list of priorities. Maybe she could have hired somebody to mow her yard for her. I doubt it. My wife and I knew that she was barely making ends meet as it was, so rather than despise her, rather than be upset with her because her yard was filled with weeds that were causing weeds to spring up in my own yard, I decided to take the time every week to go over and mow her yard for her. She never asked me to, she only thanked me one time, but I was able to do it with a smile on my face. Why? Because I wasn't just doing it for her. I was doing it to honor the Lord as well. So the lesson here is to develop friendships with your neighbors. Love on them. They need it. You do too, and you're blessed when you do. This concludes Lesson 3. Lesson 4. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 22, Solomon writes, Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. There's been a series of sayings in the last few verses which speak specifically of good or goodness. In verse 14, Solomon told us that a good man will be satisfied by his ways. And in verse 19, we saw that the evil will bow down before the good. And here again, we're talking about end results and end rewards. The reward for devising evil is, not surprisingly, going astray. This should remind us of verse 17 when Solomon told us that the person who deliberately plans evil is hated. The contrast here is between this type of person and the person who deliberately plans goodness. The reward for deliberately planning goodness, according to Solomon, is receiving kindness and truth. So, kindness and truth, or going astray. Which do you prefer? Your choice should dictate what type of actions your life should be characterized by, either good or or evil actions. It's not a hard decision. In the next verses, Proverbs chapter 14, verses 23 and 24, Solomon writes, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. Talk is cheap. We've all heard that one, right? I think we can give credit to Solomon for putting the idea out there a long time before our modern slogan, however. So the fact that we have a saying or slogan which communicates the exact same principle that Solomon was trying to communicate 3,000 years ago is a pretty good indication that this is a timeless, universal principle. I think we'd be wise to pay attention. Now, I don't think anyone could miss the fact that money, finances, that's a theme that Solomon has repeatedly come back to throughout the book of Proverbs. Solomon isn't saying that money is bad or evil necessarily. No, the Bible never says that money is the root of all evil. Instead, what Paul wrote to Timothy, as Timothy was starting his ministry and was in need of Paul's mentoring and advice, was Quote, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Now, I'm convinced that Solomon keeps coming back to this theme of money because money is the most dangerous thing in the world. It makes us do, if we're just being honest, it makes us do a lot of really stupid stuff if we're not careful. And because money is God's number one contender for our hearts. Now, people can get caught up in spending a lot of time dreaming up ways to get rich. 
Some people dream of getting rich quick. Some are more methodical and come up with a plan to retire rich. The principle that Solomon wants us to get here is that dreaming or talking about money currently pays $0 per hour. And not just currently. It has never paid anything. Sure, there's a time for coming up with a game plan. We all need money to provide at least the basic necessities. But if your planning is getting in the way of your doing, then something is seriously flawed. Now, Solomon offers a proof for us, telling us that the difference between the wise and the foolish is the same difference that exists between talking and doing. Again, we're looking at the reward. In this case, it's a crown for the wise doers, but empty pockets for the foolish talkers. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25, Solomon writes, A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. Now, anytime you find repetition in the text, you should notice it because it indicates emphasis. Now, anytime you find repetition in the text, you should notice it because it indicates emphasis. <laughs> Did you catch that? This proverb should ring a bell because it's actually very, very similar to chapter 14, verse 5, where we read, quote, A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. The difference is that Solomon is taking things one step further for each side in this verse here. Now, if we were to put these two verses together, making them one, it might say something like, A truthful witness won't lie and saves lives, but a false witness utters lies and is treacherous. Again, we're looking at results of a person's actions. We're looking at the outcome. What's the result of a truthful witness? Lives are saved. What's the result of a false witness? Treachery, deceit, danger, and the chance of somebody losing their life unnecessarily. King David once wrote, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And the answer, which is found in the following verse, is simple and straightforward. He says, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. That's from Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. And this is a reflection of the same truth that Jesus spoke of when he said that he only speaks truth because he does what his father does, and his father is truth. So Jesus couldn't help but speak truth, right? On the flip side, those who cannot help but lie are copying the actions of their father, who's the father of lies. That's from John chapter 8, verse 44. So I guess the question that we end the day with is, who's your daddy? I'm Toby Logsdon, and this has been your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.